Hello, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Living Word Community Church. How are you tonight? It's great to have you here. Let's stand together. Up on our feet. Feet? Did I just say that? Up on our feet. <laughs> I did say that. It's okay. You're gracious to me for my silliness. Let's bow our heads and our hearts and ask him to bless this time. Father, we do, Lord. We just love this time we have together with each other, with you. Lord, a time that we can prepare our hearts, Lord, and just forget about what happened in the day and forget about what's coming tomorrow. And even in the next moment, Lord, we just surrender it all to you. We want to fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. God, we just ask for just a, a closing of that which is around us that's trying to draw us away from you, Lord, that's trying to distract us from what you'd have us do. We want to center ourselves in you and upon your holy word, Lord. We ask for an anointing upon Pastor Frank, Lord. God, as he teaches this night, just pray that your words would truly transform us and make us more like Jesus, disciples of the Messiah. May you be honored this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Trust in you, Lord. When I can't see it, I know you're here. When I can't feel you, I will not fear. I will trust in you, and I will not be afraid. In the battle, in the battle, is close at hand. I know you're with me. Yes, you are. Help me stand. I will trust in you, and I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. I will trust in you. darkness is closing in and I am running against the wind I will trust in you and I will not be afraid when I'm standing Lord upon that shore and all the battles they had gone before I will trust in you and I will not Afraid. I will not be afraid. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. I will trust. I will trust in you.
Father, we give you thanks and praise, Lord God, this evening, just coming into your presence, Lord, to praise you and worship you, and just bow down, Lord God, before you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are our creator. You are the very one who sustains, Lord God, our lives. You are our Savior who died for us on the cross of Calvary. Lord God, you are the one who was raised from the dead, who breathes his life into us, the very breath of life gives to us, Lord God, spiritual life. 
through the Holy Spirit of God. We just exalt you and we praise you, Lord God, here this night. We thank you for gathering us here, Lord God. It is a privilege and an honor to come into your presence, Lord God, and worship you. And Lord God, I pray that you would be with us all. Every one of us comes here, Lord God, with specific needs, with specific desires. Lord God, meet us where we are tonight. Minister to our hearts and to our bodies and to our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you all. Have a seat. Kids can go. sermonette for you tonight called Family Trouble. Do you ever have family trouble? Never? Never have? Nobody. Nobody. Everybody here, right? We're all just blessed. and Family trouble. Do you know that in the Bible there are people who had family troubles? So in Numbers 12, stand with me for the reading of the word. I'm going to read the first three verses of Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman who he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds, Lord God, to your word. Father God, this is a passage, Lord God, that is so relevant to us all, Lord God. We all are, Lord God, navigating relationships, Lord God, with people in our families, people in the church, Lord God, people in our lives. And one of the greatest challenges that you have given us, Lord God, for people are our greatest asset, Lord God, they also can be our greatest liability. And we pray, Lord God, that you would just teach us, Lord God, through your word, how we can navigate more successfully through our relationships. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. So here is again this conflict that occurs between Moses and his brother and sister Aaron and Miriam. There's a, a, a proverb in Proverbs 17:17. Uh, 17, 17, I'm reading from the King James Version. A friend loveth at all times, a brother is born for adversity. Well, in the passage, a sister <laughs> can be born for adversity. And I think that, you know, we would all agree, people are our greatest asset, right? And they are also our greatest liability. They bring us the greatest amount of joy, but they can also bring us the greatest amount of, of, of pain. And I think we, you know, again, that is, I think, something we all can agree upon. The challenge in life is to navigate human relationships and to navigate them successfully. Now, when you get to the, the word... You know, the Bible, and I love this about the Bible, the Bible never sugarcoats life. The Bible, right, it doesn't, you know, pull any, you know, punches. Uh, it shows that life is not only or not always, you know, sunshine and, and honey, that life brings problems. And when it comes to relationships, relationships, right, it brings relational problems. You go through the Bible, right at the beginning, you have a relational problem between Adam and Eve, Right? And then, you know, you, you see, you know, the relational problem between Cain and Abel. Noah and Ham, right? You see that re relational problem there. As you go on in the scriptures, you see relational conflict with, with Sarah and, and with Abraham, right? Hagar, with Esau and Isaac, with um, essentially Rebekah and Esau's two uh, Hittite wives, you see the conflict between Jacob and Esau. Conflict between, uh, you see here with Rachel and Leah, the conflict that occurs there. I mean, it goes, it goes, it goes on and on. The 12, the 12 sons of Jacob, conflict. They're in conflict with Joseph. You know, you think, you think maybe you've had some problems with your siblings, right? Think about his brothers sold him as a slave, right, to the Ishmaelites, to the Midianites, 
You know, how about that? And then went to the father and told Jacob that he had been killed by a wild animal. I mean, just, just ter- you know, terrible, terrible things. Conflict here with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You see, you see conflicts with Saul and with Jonathan, right, his son. He tries to kill his son. See this situation? I mean, the, the media made it public about this man in South Carolina who killed his son and his, uh, his wife. Well, there's some characters in the Bible who, who essentially attempted and did things, you know, like that. David and, you know, David's conflict with Absalom. And then there were all sorts of problems that you see in the lineage of David with his, with his children. And you get, into, you get to the New Testament, you see conflict. And I think sometimes, you know, people, they have this delusion. And I think, you know, some people, they have this idea about the church that, you know, the, the church is somewhere where you're going to find that there's freedom from relational conflict. And I just want to say, you are, you know, you, you believe that. You, you, I mean, you are so... I mean, what's the right? You are just so naive. And I see people come into the church with this, I mean, naivety of just, you know, I mean, they're delusional that when they think, oh, there's conflict in the church. I mean, look at the scriptures, the conflict with apostles continuously with their egos. The conflict right after the Holy Spirit was given. With, you can see the, the, the conflict that happens between Barnabas and Paul. Between Paul and Peter in Galatians. And Peter, Peter is called by Paul. He calls him a hypocrite twice for pulling away, right, from the Gentiles. So it just, it, it's, you know, it, it conflict. Basically, we, we live in a relational world. And again, with people being our, our greatest asset, but also being our greatest, you know, our greatest liability, there, there comes conflict. I've been working as a, as a pastor now almost 40 years. And uh, I've been doing executive coaching for corporations for 25 years. I can tell you, most of what I deal with deals with relationships. It deals with, with leading people. It deals with, with coaching people. It deals with motivating, inspiring people. And a lot of the time, we're dealing with interpersonal conflicts that occur right in, in, in these relationships. Dealing with, with, with different personalities. So again, navigating, navigating the rough waters of relationships is, is a great challenge. Different personalities, different types of people. And then you know, one something you get, I'll give you, I want to give you something. This is good. Something that I, I teach. There are drama queens. And in life. They're, they're in our families. They're, they could be our children, uh, people that we, we work with. And essentially, essentially what, what drama queens do, they feel they have the right to draw you into their drama. So I'm having a bad day, the drama queen says, right? Things aren't going the way I want them to go. They're pouting. They're complaining. They're whining. They feel they have a right to take you and to draw them into their drama, that they can just throw up all over you, and that that is their that is their right to be able to you know to do that. And when when I think a lot of this comes from children grow up in families, right? And what do children do to get their way, to get attention? They act out. So they'll stomp up and down. They'll pout. They'll scream. Right? They'll cry. They'll stand in a corner. Right? They'll do all sorts of things. And if, if that behavior does not change, you have adults who basically do the same thing with, you know, with people. They feel they have a right, again, just to, to pout, to scream, to cry, to stomp up and down, and again, to get you drawn into their drama. And they can manipulate you. Drama queens manipulate people, and most of it is just emotional drama. It's not logical Right, we say it's it's right brain, left brain is the logical side. It's basically operating in their right brain, and they just feel again that they have this right to just draw you into their drama, and so they're you know again there's I mean they they should be in the third grade play with you know with what they do, and so there's a, a point with this. You know what a, a dysfunctional family is, 
ultimately a dysfunctional family is a family where everybody feels they have a right to draw everybody else into their drama. So this is where what, what I encourage you to do and what I, I'll tell you what I, what I practice is when the drama queen comes to me, I put on my Dr. Freud glasses, right? I drop them down and I am basically going to be objective and not allow myself to be subjected to their drama. I, sometimes I will walk away. Some, sometimes I just I, I refuse, again, to enter into it. It usually frustrates them and makes them angry because they're, again, this is, this is how they get what they want in their families, in their marriages, in their, in their work. They just, they stomp up and down. They're, again, very dramatic with, you know, all the emotion. And they really don't know how to communicate on a logical level. But just, again, stepping back, being Dr. Freud, I'm going to look at this. I want to understand and I want to diagnose it that, hey, this again, this is a pathology. This is a pattern that this person operates in consistently. And it could be, listen, it could be an 80-year-old person or it could be a four-year-old child. You begin to, you know, see these patterns. I want to step back and not allow myself to be subjected. Now... I choose when I want to be subjected, when I want to enter into someone's pain, or I want to enter into someone's joy. But I don't allow people to come in and just subject me to their pain. So Jesus, there were times where Jesus refused to give himself to people. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. One of the disciples comes to Jesus and said, there are these two Greeks, and um, they're, um, they want to see you. And he said, I don't want to be bothered. I don't know what the reason was, but he didn't want to enter into what they were doing. There was another time where two brothers came to him and said, we're fighting over the inheritance. He said, why are you bothering me with this? I haven't, I haven't come here to settle your, you know, your domestic disputes. And I think that there, there is a time where we will withdraw, that I, I just, I'm not entering into this. But you choose, you choose when we want to enter into somebody's genuine pain, into somebody's genuine suffering. And that, that basically creates function. And in a family, that makes that family, that marriage, the relationships with the children, functional. So what you have here in this story is, you know, a picture really of Miriam and Aaron's dysfunction. And it is a dysfunctional, you know, situation. So let's, let's look at it. You have, first of all, Moses is attacked, okay, by his brother and sister. And in verses uh, 1 through 3, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Let me just stop there for a second. So Moses was married to a woman named Zipporah who was the um, daughter of Jethro. Well, he lived, he lived, in, he lived there, right, in, in um, Midian with, you know, with Jethro and, and with Zippor, and he had, two, he had two children there. Now, I don't believe this woman is Zipporah. I believe it's very likely Zipporah died. And then Moses married a, a, a Cushite, a, a Cushite woman, Ethiopian woman. But I want to show you just, I want to take you back to a conflict that happened with Moses and Zipporah. It's kind of a, a funny situation. In Exodus chapter 4, 24 through 26, it says, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. The Lord was going to kill Moses. It's pretty heavy. So it says, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. Apparently, Zipporah was not in favor of circumcision. And I think what Moses did here, Moses was getting absorbed into the Midianite culture for 40 years. And I think he was kind of losing sight of the Abrahamic covenant that was confirmed through circumcision. So he's neglecting to do what God called the Israelites to do, and Zipporah, apparently, again, she has this influence, and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a brutal thing, it's a painful thing, 
And Zipporah doesn't want her son to be circumcised. So then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. See, that's circumcising our son. This is a bloody thing. So we let him go. And then he said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So there's, a, there's again, a picture of, of marital conflict between Moses, again, I believe Moses neglecting something very important, but um, and then, you know, God saying, you know, really dealing with him and to the point that he would kill him, and then him obviously emphasizing that, the, you know, the son had to be circumcised, but Zipporah, again, resisting until the point that, you know, she circumcised the kid and threw the uh, foreskin down at his, at his feet. And uh, so let me go, I, I wanna bring, I'm going to bring you back to um, verse... Uh, Two and three, so again, here here is this this marriage to this Ethiopian woman, and let me just say this: it wasn't forbidden. The Israelites were forbidden to marry Canaanites; they they weren't forbidden to marry Ethiopians. And it's likely, I believe, that that this woman was an Ethiopian, a Cushite, who was living in Egypt, possibly even as a slave, and that I believe she joined the Israel community. And she left with them. She fled with them through the Dead Sea. And obviously, she was a woman who was of color. So that could be part of the issue here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on that more. That they may have objected, um, possibly because, again, she was a Cushite, just simply, you know, because, or possibly because of the color of her skin, which became an issue. So in verse 2, so they said, and this is Miriam and Aaron, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Right? Has he not spoken through us? And the Lord heard it. He's listening to everything we're saying. And um, the picture there is, by the way, Miriam is called a prophetess in Exodus 15, verse 20. Aaron is, is the high priest, so they, they had very important roles, right, in the, in the community, in the Israeli community, but not quite the role that Moses had. So in, in verse 3 it says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Who wrote that? <laughs> he wrote, I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. Now I believe in the inspiration of Scripture, so I believe the Holy Spirit gave that, but... Let me just, just kind of qualify this with, with what, is, you know, what is being said here. Moses had an incredible humility. And, you, you know, you see that where even in this situation, he doesn't go on the offensive. I think, you know, when you look at Moses, he didn't, you know, retaliate because he was aware of his own weaknesses. He didn't, he didn't go, hey, I'm the lawgiver. I'm the one who was given the Ten Commandments on, on Sinai. I am the one who was called by God at the burning bush. You know, I, I am the one, right, who divided the Red Sea, right? He didn't, he didn't go on the offensive, and uh, he just, he just kind of steps back here and doesn't play the game. Do you know who you're talking to? Do, do you know who I am? <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't do that. And uh, I think a lot of it comes from he understood, right, he understood his weaknesses. And so you, 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 look, at, you, know, you look at Moses, right, when God, when God called him, you see that awareness of his weakness. Who, me? You, you want me to lead Israel? Right, but you could get somebody else. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the man, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shepherd, and, you know, in the desert, I, I, I don't speak well. I'm not eloquent. And he was, he was a man, I think, who really, he knew himself, and he knew his strengths, but he also knew his weaknesses. So um, I think that's where you know, that, that humility can be said. Paul called himself the chief sinner. That's an incredible statement of humility. But I, I believe Moses, Moses knew. He knew his weaknesses. He knew right, his insecurities, he also knew he had a bad temper. 
right? And that temper eventually cost him from entering into the promised land. But I think he was aware of that. And you know, it's, 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 it's one thing, you know, to have weaknesses and deny them. And that's a huge problem that you're going to have with God with that. But, and by the way, that's the Pharisees issue. They have massive weaknesses and they're in denial about them. But to have weaknesses and be aware of them and to bring them to God, you know, you're confessing them to God and you're seeking God. I think that's, that's again, that's the humility that you see in, in, in Moses. And I think that's, you know, that's key. So, um, so here they are in this conflict. Now, the, uh, the next point. God, right here, right, let's have a family huddle. That's what God calls them to. Let's, let's, have, a, let's have a family huddle. I'm going to talk to you about this. So in, in verses 4 through 8, suddenly, right, notice the word suddenly. God is intervening here big time. The Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. This is like being called into the principal's office. The two of them, they got their tails between their legs. You ever see a dog that's really like, in, like this there? They got their tails in, in between their legs, and now they're coming to meet with God. And this isn't good. They're, 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 I think their knees are knocking together. They're, I think, very afraid. And um, this is, a, you know, this is, this is, again, this is a very, going to be a huge disciplinary experience here. Verse 6. Then he said, hear now my words. I want you to notice this. He doesn't say, tell me your side of the story. I don't know if I'm doing counseling for years. You know you get? You get people coming to you. Here's their side of the story. Here's their side of the story. And they go back and forth. And this is my problem. This is my... Right back. And there was a time where I used to sit and listen to this stuff. Sometimes upstairs until 10, 11 o'clock at night, listening to people going back and forth, you know, trying to make their point. Notice the point here. It's not your side of the story or your side of the story. It's God's side of the story. What does God say about the situation? And I've kind of like learned to cut to the chase with people. And uh, you, know, you, can tell me, you can tell me what's going on in 10 minutes, and I can then just point you to some scripture and tell you what God thinks. You know, biblical counseling. So, again, he doesn't want to hear Miriam's side. He doesn't want to hear Aaron's side. He says, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak to him in a dream. And that is how God communicates, right, with the prophets. Communicated with Isaiah, communicated with Ezekiel, right, communicated with Daniel. But then he says in verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. Notice he calls him his servant. He's not saying my leader or the leader of Israel, my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. In all my house, he's the most faithful. And he says, I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Like You, you don't know who you're making your accusations against. You know, you have a role as, as a prophetess. You have a role as the high priest. But this is the man that I have chosen to lead Israel. And he, 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 he rebukes. I want to show you this. So he, he says here, I speak to them face to face. And um, I'll take you back again to Exodus. Exodus 33 and Exodus 33 11 and there's there's like a little conflict here so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp but his servant Joshua the son of Nun uh, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle and then in verse 23 it says then I will take away my hand and you will, shall see my back but my face you shall not see so there seems to be a, 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 a contradiction there, and it, and it raises you know, several questions. So when it's talking here about the Lord's face, does the Lord have a face? 
Does God have a hand? Right? Does God have a back? So what what is being said when he's saying, you know, God speaks face to face, and there are really there are two potential things here. One is that it is a Christophany, and a Christophany is, again, Jesus was incarnate. There's a difference between the incarnation of Jesus being born to the Virgin, okay, than what is called a Christ, Christophany, okay? We, we use the term, again, an anthropomorphism, but a Christophany is, is that there are places in the Old Testament where God appeared to people, in the form of a man, when he appeared to Abraham with the two, the two angels, the three men. I believe it's uh, in, in, in Genesis 18. So I believe that could be one of the things that basically the Lord came in a Christophany and he sat and talked with Moses. The other is, is that it's speaking figuratively or metaphorically. And the idea of, of God speaking face to face with Moses, he's entering into a deep intimacy with God. So in Exodus, I'll bring you to verse 19 and 20 of 33. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence, but you cannot see my face, for no one sees me and lives. So either it's a Christophany, again, or it is a, a, a deep intimacy that the Lord, and by the way, that's what God calls us to. You may, you, Jesus may not be a peer. I mean, I don't, I've never met anybody. I've met some, I, I, I have never met anybody who was a, a solid biblical Christian who said that they saw Jesus face to face. Okay? I do believe, though, that we have the opportunity to have incredible intimacy with God. And when Jesus, when Jesus said, it is better that I go than I stay, Right, and the apostles are like, how could that possibly be? You know, we, we see you, we touch you, we hug you, we hear you. It's better that I go away than stay, because if I go away then, what? The comforter, the spirit, the paraclete will come, and he will live inside of you. And that is uh, to a greater advantage. And Jesus even said, you know, in the kingdom of God, the least in the kingdom of God was greater than John the Baptist. Well, Morally, John was the greatest man who ever lived, you know, outside of Jesus. Uh, as a prophet, he's called the greatest prophet, you know, who, who ever lived. But why is the person in the kingdom of God greater than John? Because we have that opportunity to be filled with the Spirit, I think in a unique way that the Old Testament saints were not. I know it says that John was filled from the Spirit from birth. But, I, I, you know, again, the, the, the Pentecostal experience of being filled with the Spirit I think is something that, again, Jesus was referring to with that. Let me just say this about intimacy with God. It is something that is experienced in quantity as well as in quality. So, you know, if, if you're not experiencing intimacy with God, and, you know, you look at the, the, the studies, the studies that are done by the Pew Research, and they talk to Christians how much time them. The average Christian spends one minute in prayer a day. The average pastor spends three minutes a day in prayer. You know, you're not going to be experiencing intimacy with God doing that. So if you're going to experience intimacy with God, you have to spend time with God. Five minutes is, is, is not... It's like if, if, you, if you exercise for five minutes... You're not going to get right. You're not going to get great, you know, benefits. Derek is a, a physical fitness trainer. You're not going to be gaining tremendous benefits as compared to spending, you know, 45 minutes or an hour. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. It's the same thing with with everything. In in again, learning something, learning a skill. You want to become proficient in the piano. You're not going to learn the piano playing it five minutes a day. You're going to have to spend an hour or two. Quality time, okay, in, in doing. So it's, it's, it's quantity of the time you're spending with God, but it's also quality. And quality is, you know, is your focus, is your attention, is your awareness, is your alertness. Because you, you, you could be reading your Bible and not have basically read anything or understood anything that you read. You can be praying, right, the, the, the Pharisee, he was just praying to himself. You can just be praying words and they're meaningless. You could be sitting here tonight and getting nothing out of this because your mind is in a, a thousand different places. So it's, it's not just, again, about quantity. It's about the quality. And when you enter in to that relationship with God and you're in that place of, of, of solitude and serenity and prayer and communion and worship, and, again, you're, you've got quality there and quantity that's where we can really experience God.
And this, this thing, this is what this, it was not meant to be a religion. And you could be sitting in church and you could be as, as dead as a corpse in the graveyard. Right? You, you, could, you could recite the prayers or recite the creeds and you could read the Bible even. But it's, it's, it's about the heart and it's about relationship and it's about intimacy. Number three, God's verdict. This is a frightening verdict. So verses 9 through 12, so the anger of the Lord was aroused against them and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. And then Aaron turned towards Miriam and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, oh my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly. And that's exactly what it is, it's foolishness. And in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. Now the, the, word, the word there for leprosy, that's a terrible, terrible translation. The word is tazar in, in Hebrew. And um, leprosy is a neurological disease, right? It basically deadens the nerves of the body. The leper no longer feels, so they burn their hands, so their fingers fall off because they've damaged them. They become blind because they, they can't, again, feel the, the projectile that's coming towards their eye. It's, it's, it's not talking about leprosy. The, the, the translation would be, again, of Tazar, this is some type of a, a, a skin ailment, psoriasis, eczema. Uh, it's basically scaly skin, skins that scaled, and essentially became white. It's like a, it, it would be a white fungi. God gave her a fungus that turned her white. And this is where, again, there, there could be a correlation here between if, if, again, the opposition is because Moses married an Ethiopian woman. A corresponding discipline or punishment for her sin. Like you're, you're opposing your brother because he's married a woman of dark skin. You know what I'm going to do? I'll turn you white as a ghost. And that is something that, you know, some, some scholars have suggested. Hey, how many of you remember, and some of you older folks, and if you can find this movie, watch it. It's called The Watermelon Man. Who remembers The Watermelon Man? Anybody? You got just a few of you? Okay, it's a movie that was uh, played by Godfrey Cambridge. This is in the late 60s. A lot of racial tension. You think there's racial tension now. You should have grew up during that time. So there's a massive amount of racial tension. And you know what? My parents, I grew up, I grew up in New York City. Uh, we were um, Italian family. There were Puerto Ricans. I thought everybody who was Spanish was Puerto Rican, by the way. Until just a few years ago, until I until I understood in the church, you had Colombians and Nicaraguans and El Salvadorians and Cubans, and but I thought everybody was a Puerto Rican, and uh, and then there were blacks. All my friends were were black. All my brother's friends were Puerto Ricans, and by the way, I thought the Puerto Ricans were savages. I just want to tell you, you know why I thought that because um, I never saw a turtle before, and the kid across the street he caught a turtle out in New Jersey, a little box turtle. And I went over, and my brother shows me, right, his, his friend, Puerto Rican kid. We see the turtle, right, walking around. It was really cool. Next day I go, and I'm, where's the turtle? And there's the grandfather, and he's, he's on a bench with a bucket in front of him, cleaning out the shell. He made turtle soup. And I thought, Puerto Ricans, you're all savages. <laughs> I sense have changed, changed that view. But... Um, so my, my friends are black, but grew up, grew up with kids who never, I never knew they were black. I never knew I was white. I was colorblind. And uh, so this, this movie, when it hit, I remember watching it a few times with my family. So the man is, is a white guy, and he's a bigot. He's a, he's a profound bigot. And what happens in the movie, God turns him black. So Godfrey Cambridge, he experiences what it is to live like a black man in a time in the 60s. So in the morning, he used to race the bus to work, and he would run along the side of the bus trying to beat the bus. So as a white guy, he just ran on the street. 
But as a black guy, when he was running along, I guess in a white neighborhood, the cops came and arrested him. But he's experiencing what black people were experiencing and sometimes still do. But it's a, it's a, great, mo it's a great movie. But I think that, that could be what God did to Miriam. You're, you're a bigot and you're opposed to the wife of your brother. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn your skin white until you're as white as a ghost. And uh, that could be. So that, that, the last thing is the punishment, verse 13 through 16. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, please heal her, God, I pray. And it's a beautiful thing, right? Then the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Now, that was essentially a, a saying, if somebody spits in your face, that, I mean, that, that is an expression of absolute disgust. And that is really what God is saying, metaphorically. I have spit in her face. I am so disgusted with what she has done. And again, this, I'm speaking metaphorically. You're not literally. But God said, I am so disgusted with the way she has treated Moses and the way she has treated Moses' wife that now for, for seven days, by the way, the seven days, Leviticus uh, chapter 14, when a person was healed of any sort of skin ailment, uh, after the healing, they still had to stay out of the camp for seven days. So uh, if her father had spit in her face, she would not have shamed seven days. Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterwards she may be received again. God, God healed her, and he brought her back. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days, and the people did not journey till Miriam was brought back, uh, brought out, uh, in again. And afterwards the people moved from Hazoreth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. It's just, again, God's discipline. You know, the, the, the passages through the scriptures and then in, in the book of Hebrews, God disciplines those he loves. In Hebrews chapter 12, 5 through 8, and you have forgotten this exhortation which uh, speaks to you as sons. Notice the, I mean, the repeating of the word, the word son. Uh, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. He will discipline those. He loves. Have you ever been disciplined by the Lord? Yeah. It's, 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 it can be harsh. This was, this was very harsh discipline. Miriam is a covenant woman. Aaron is, uh, they're, they're covenant people. These aren't people out of covenant, but they, covenant people can do bad things. Covenant people can hurt people. And God will, God will intervene in discipline. You know what, I'll just say this to you. Many times, it took me time to learn this because I'm a really good counterpuncher. So when I get hit, I hit back, right? And it's just kind of, that was my nature. You know, you hit me, I'm going to hit back. I'm going to hit you head back harder than, uh, you know, than you hit me. But I've learned to just step back. And when there are people who, you know, maybe have, have attacked, or sometimes even in the church, not with myself, just sometimes just step back and watch God and watch what God will do. Now, vengeance is mine, he says. You know, it is, it is mine to repay. And uh, I think, again, Moses, Moses understood that. So here, here's a, a, couple of, a couple of key notes. I think in here, you see the sin of selfish ambition. And, um, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with ambition, but ambition becomes selfish when we start to think that we're going to be able to dethrone people. And I think that's what Miriam and Aaron are in a place where, like, who are you? We're, we're, you know, we, we're gifted. We, you know, I'm a, I'm a priest. I'm a prophetess. Who are, you know, who are you? And that selfish ambition really got them into trouble. Just be careful who you challenge. There's a, there's a great song by Jim Croce. I'll read this part to you. Uh, they say you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. 
You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with Jim. And you don't mess around with Moses. You know, just, you know, just that, that, that was a, a huge mistake. Another, I think, another key point in, in Matthew 23, 12, and again, Jesus, this is repeated in the Gospels, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Aaron and Miriam exalted themselves, and they got humbled. Moses humbled himself, and he got exalted. And, and a, a key thing, again, about just about being a leader in the church, again, Matthew 20, 26, it shall not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And in the kingdom of God, you've got to go low to go high. It's an, it's an upside-down kingdom. You look at the, a, a corp, we deal with corporate pyramids. And in the corporate pyramid, the CEO is at the top, right? And then you, then you have your, you know, your managers, and then you have your dis, you know, your district managers, and then you have, you know, you have all of essentially your, you know, the workers, the foot soldiers. Well, in the kingdom of God, the pyramid is turned upside down. So the the leader is the servant. So pastors need to be servants of the church, and not to be the ones again the lording over the church. So it's a it's an upside down kingdom. And I think again, this is where Miriam and Aaron learned a, they learned a very hard lesson. With that, I want to say this: we have we have men here um, who are preaching and teaching the word, and I, I'm excited about that. Dante did a great job last week in light of his his challenges, and that's again that that's what we're developing here. He didn't back out. He didn't call somebody else. He came up here and preached when uh, he was <laughs> he had technical problems and everything else. But God bless him. That's that's what we're you know that's what we're looking to raise up, but men, you know Derek, you're being called to to ministry. Tito, you're you know you're you're preaching the word. Dante preaching the word. Raphael will have another opportunity to preach the word very soon. Just keep yourself in a place of humility, because I've wa- I've watched many people through the years come in and out of this church, claiming that they were called to preach and teach the gospel or pastor. And I'll tell you something, their pride, and they are nowhere today. Some of them, some of them, they're not, I, I wonder if they're even in the Lord. But they don't go to church. They don't want to be bothered with God. And again, there was, you know, there was, there was pride and, and that self-exaltation. Stay humble. Be willing to do even the most menial things in the church. And, um, and God, again, he will always raise you up. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for this word, Lord God. It's, it is a, a wonderful word, Lord, to learn from. Again, learning from people's mistakes is far better than learning from our own. Lord God, may we just continuously live with that realization that, Lord God, that we have been redeemed, that we have been saved, that we are called, Lord, by your name. We still fall short of your glory. And there are, Lord, many holes in our lives many weaknesses, and we need to depend on you and rely on you, Lord God, and walk humbly in your spirit. And as we do that, Lord God, we can be confident you will raise us up. So, Lord God, I pray a blessing upon all, and press this word upon their hearts and minds, for in Jesus' name we pray this, amen. You can stand with me. Thank you, Pastor Frank. Thank you, Lord, for your word. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, right? The altars are open if you'd like to pray up here before we spend time praying together.
God, thank you, Lord, for this night. For your precious word, we do worship you, Lord, with all our hearts. Father, we just ask that you continue to lead us this night as we spend, spend time, Lord, interceding, giving you praise, Lord God, just enjoying this fellowship and communion with you. In your name we pray.